back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by someone who is becoming a semi-regular on the show, uh, Mr. John Wilson. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me back on. I, I, I always enjoy our talks together about comics. As, as do I, and I've also enjoyed our talks about music, not to, um, not music, movies, rather, not mm-hmm. to, uh, to make it too limited, but... Uh, as I mentioned last time, you're the uh, you're the one who comes to me now, which I appreciate. And I, I, again, I say this with total appreciation that you said, "Hey, how about we do this?" And I just think that's great. Uh, so my understanding is you see, you know, I'm just going to back it up a little bit. You seem to be the man of the project. Uh, that, that you're you're basically <laughs> not happy if you don't have some sort of meaty project to dig your. Uh, your fangs into and I, I feel like everything that i read has to fit into a system somewhere somehow so yeah i do a lot of project-based reading i keep trying to do projects and i start projects and then i get distracted you know like a moth goes by and i'm done mm-hmm. but uh i i definitely respect the project i just wish i could do a little bit more of it maybe if i had more free time uh as which is something we were just talking about before we started recording is the commodity of free time is just a great thing and you know just i i I use a lot of mine for podcasting and i'm sure you do as well uh but your latest project as i understand it is you're doing a read-through on the valiant line of comics yeah i um whenever valiant relaunched in like 2012 i checked him out because there was a lot of hype going on and I really, really loved what I was reading. So I was like, I remember Valiant being a big thing back in the 90s. I want to read some classic Valiant. So I started digging into um, some classic Valiant and just really fell in love with the different approaches to superpower-based stories that weren't superhero comics, if that makes sense. Um, and... As my Superman read-through has re-approached 1991 when Valiant got its launch, I was like, hey, this is like another good excuse to dig into some old Valiant. And um, I'm contemplating the ifs on doing an actual focused podcast about these comics. I have not yet pulled the trigger on that, so to speak. But uh, I thought if nothing else, I'd be make a good theme for a back to the bits episode so here we are i definitely agree with you on the latter one uh as far as a a valiant based podcast i would think you would have a niche audience on that i just don't know how large of an audience it would be but i don't even know that that's that should be the deciding factor on it i think it should be totally gauged on your own level of passion for the project and right. then you just hope the, that the audience finds it, you know, because there is an audience out there somewhere for it. There's an audience for virtually everything out there. It's just a matter of your podcast finding its way onto their phones. And with a lot of my podcasting, it's like I like the numbers. The numbers are nice. The numbers make me happy, happy. But it's not a driving force with my podcasting. Really? More than the numbers is whenever I have people interacting with the show and doing feedback. 
Uh, I, I would agree with you. I would agree with you that that's a very big point. Uh, but I do feel the the urge to try and get it out to as many people who are interested in it as possible. I'm mm-hmm. um, not necessarily, you know, we're not ratings driven, you know, like TV or, or radio or even a streaming uh, service because we're not at we're not selling it based on advertising. We're not charging for the podcast. So what my goal is is to have the people who feel passionately about the subject matter find it. Right. If that's a niche audience, that's fine. You know, but the larger that niche audience is, you know, that does it does stroke your ego a little bit when you can get that. Uh, you know, when you get a loyal a loyal listener follow loyal listener following. Uh, you know, so that it, it depends. You know, we I've done some things that are more passion projects. I mean, when we did keep them flying, I don't think our uh, numbers for that were you know nearly as high as we get on on back to the bins. But it was a hell of a lot of fun to do, so I'm not complaining. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the chance to go back and watch Firefly and listen to y'all talk about it. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, and you know, again, that's it's like finding the audience who is gonna appreciate it. You know, so Valiant is something I've never really gotten into. Uh, not not for any reason not to get into it. I just it's just never found its way to me. So you're suggesting this was cool because it, it gave me a chance to, you know, to experience something I hadn't seen before. What I had heard uh, was that where Image was more artist-based, Valiant was more writer-based. You know, so it was a different way of looking at things. I can, I can see that. Um, I think. Image Comics was intended as a uh, creator-owned project, and they, you know, made efforts to interweave them into a universe that worked to a greater or lesser degree as time went on. Uh, whereas I think Valiant started out with <clears throat> all of the two books that we're talking about take place centuries apart and don't seem to be connected whatsoever. Um, you do have a lot of different series that, you know, actually I'm thinking about it. There's not even a whole lot of interaction except for the big unity crossover storyline. So yeah, maybe it is just like writer driven stories. Certainly the art chops are there because you've got Barry Windsor Smith. We're going to be talking about tonight and uh, Bob Layton inking over Art Nichols's pencils. I mean, so yeah, but, but the writing definitely drives these stories and, pretty interesting ways and and I've, I've often like i've talked to scott who is a more art-based fan i've talked to professor allen who is a more writing-based fan and i always consider myself to be more of a balanced uh reader but i think if i do lean one way or the other i do lean slightly more towards the writing same i try to I try to appreciate the art, and certainly if art turns me off, that's going to be a, a, a um, speed bump, an obstacle to get past to enjoy a story. But I can be, I can be entertained by a solidly written story, even if the art is a little bit difficult. Well, I, th- I think an example of that, to some extent, might be uh, last time you were on when we were discussing that issue of Shield, where the art was dynamic and you know very creative and interesting and the story was just a little out there uh, mm-hmm. and you know it, it 
definitely hurt our appreciation for the story. But on the other hand, we still were able to appreciate what, you know, what was being created from the art point of view. So uh, I guess, you know, everybody's mileage can vary on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and when I think about Starenko on S.H.I.E.L.D., I feel like people get so wowed by the art that the the difficulties in his writing that series ought to just get ignored completely. But having read it through the entire run, yeah, Starenko was a really good artist. Yeah, he definitely was. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Also, writing the series, but he, when it goes to writing an artist... When it comes to writing and art, he's a very good artist. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Then you have, you know, somebody who in his own way, I think, has a, has a level of similarity. Uh, I, it, I'm probably overstating it, but uh, I, I look at Jim Starlin, who, who has... <coughs> Shut up, you. Stop it. She hears the thunder outside and turns into... A... <coughs> Come here. Come here. Come here. Sit on my lap. There you go. All right. So, like, as I started to say, uh, I, I see a similarity in some ways to Jim Starlin, who kind of first broke in as an artist, but quickly developed as a writer. And he developed as a writer to the point where, you know, he would write stories that he didn't even draw anymore. Uh, and and when you look, if, if you haven't already, and I don't know if you have or not, but if you look at what he did on Captain Marvel, which was a totally failing series, or on Warlock, and then what he eventually did with, you know, the Infinity uh, stories, uh, you know, he, he was a very gifted writer, but started as an artist and started as an artist with, you know, with an eye towards some of that pop art looking style, you know, not, I, I don't know, I'm tying him into Steranko, which he didn't have a Steranko type style to him, but... Uh, in my mind, I see some sort of connection that I'm not articulating well. They're of a similar, of a similar, I think, school. Uh, they both are kind of psychedelic in how they do things. They both push the envelope on what could be done with comic art. Um, but I, I agree. I think Starlin's writing chops were much stronger, and that shows in the fact that he, like you said, can eventually began focusing even more on his writing than he did on his art and. He laid the groundwork for so much that's happening in Marvel, even to this day with the MCU and everything. It's there's a lot of Jim Starlin DNA at yeah, Marvel. Absolutely, and we're going to see more of it because my understanding is in the next Guardians movie, Adam Warlock is going to be a significant character. Oh yes. So, and anybody who is interested in that, you should be listening to the uh, Thanos and uh, and Adam Warlock po- podcast. It's called Resurrections. Yes, by Al Sedano, uh, who's been on this show many times, and Al's a great guy. And John is on his show very often. Anytime he talks about Adam Warlock, I try to be on there with him. Yeah, so why would I even question the fact that you, if you've read Adam Warlock? That was a silly thing for me to say. It's okay. It's fine. Anyway, uh, so do you know how many series did Valiant have in its run in the 90s? If you it- know. It blossomed slowly. So um, when they started out, actually before some superheroes, when Valiant started out, they were doing uh, licensed tie-in comics. So uh, they had like a Super Mario Brothers comic and some other stuff like that. Um, but then they started moving over to super-powered characters. Uh, 
And the two comics we're talking about tonight, they're both number ones. But one of them started in March and one of them started in June. And it's just they introduced series slowly at first and then ramped up. How many series did they eventually get? I want to say they probably had like 10 going simultaneously at the same time. So it wasn't like a huge publishing house, but it wasn't small either. No, that's I think that's significant for a, a publishing house that wasn't one of the big two. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're Marvel or you're DC, you know, 10 isn't that exciting. But anybody else, I think that's a fairly, fairly large number. And one of the big names in early Valiant was Jim Shooter, who, if nothing else, is known for making the trains run on time over at Marvel. So whenever he's, you know, one of the big names over at Valiant, getting books out was a really huge deal. So unlike Image, who also had a few comics at first and then blossomed, a lot of their series missed deadlines and missed months and didn't ship, whereas... When Magnus starts in March, it has an issue in April, and it has an issue in May, and it has an issue in June when Solar Man of the Atom also starts in June. And so they're both coming out regularly and dependably. All right. Now, Jim Shooter, I mean, he's a polarizing figure, uh, and I've heard people who love Jim Shooter. I've heard people who hate Jim Shooter. So all I can do is kind of go to my own personal experiences, and I've met Jim Shooter at a couple of cons where I've, you know, had some chit chat with him and he always seemed very nice. And then I had a chance to have a more extensive conversation with him. Uh, uh, he was involved in a project with uh, a creator who I'm friends with, Jeff Vaughn, and they were appearing at a local shop. And by the time I made it over there, they were almost ready to wrap it up. So there was no one else there. So I just got to sit and talk to them for about, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. And, uh, I found him to be a very pleasant individual, actually. Yeah, and probably he's the kind of person that working with or socializing with versus working for are two very different dynamics. That could very well be. But, you know, I think at least my take on it, and I probably shouldn't have a take on it, but, you know, from reading Marvel, the untold story and from different things, different documentaries I've seen and different things that have gone on. It seemed like once Stan kind of relinquished his hold on running things at Marvel, uh, that it did kind of become a case of the inmates running the asylum. And mm -hmm. it was kind of like, you know, very laissez faire and everybody could just kind of do what they wanted. Uh, and at some point or another, it had to be reeled in again. And for better or for worse, that, that ended up Jim Shooter's job. Mm -hmm. Like I said, if nothing else, that's one thing he's known for. He got books out. Yeah, and I could see, you know, if you work somewhere where people are allowed to just kind of do whatever they want, whatever, whenever they want, and a boss is brought in who says, no, you can't do that anymore. I could see where people would resent that. It doesn't mean they're right mm -hmm. to resent it, but I could understand why they would. Exactly. So. We won't pass judgment on Jim Shooter one way or the other, or the people who didn't like working for him. But in the meanwhile, we have two books, and you've you've basically indicated the two. These are both new to me. Uh, I had a familiarity with Magnus uh, from, strangely enough, because we talked about this last time also, uh, from not Brand Eck, because uh, they did a, a thing in that uh 
from I guess in the '60s he was in Charlton Comics, or was it? Uh, I don't know if it was one of the other minor publishers. But uh, Not Brandeck did a uh, parody called uh, Magnus Robot Biter. I don't think I've read that story. Or if I have, it's been too long that I've forgotten. Um, I feel like I would have remembered because, you know, the, the Magnus connection. But it was uh, it was Gold Key that okay. both of these characters had their original start was in Gold Key back in the 60s. Okay, and I've read none of that either. Uh <laughs> And then was uh, was Thunder Agents also Gold Key? Because mm. I remember them doing that in uh, Brandeck as well. I don't think Thunder Agents was Gold Key. I think uh, Thunder Agents, I want to say, was Tower, maybe? Okay. It's kind of funny that Marvel decided to uh, parody its lesser competitors that way. <laughs> like everybody, everybody gets thrown under the bus here, not Brandeck. Yeah, pretty much. But you know, I I personally enjoyed this the heck out of that series. Actually, I'm sure some people think it was totally dopey, but uh, I got a big kick out of it. And I can't say I've re- actually sat down and read them in quite a while. And maybe my nostalgia, you know, looking at it through nostalgia eyes, and maybe if I actually sat down and read it again, I would not be quite as enamored with it. I don't know. But I would rather not spoil the uh, memory. Right. It's for me. It's the sort of thing I, I can enjoy it more if I if the doses are smaller. So, one issue, especially when they were sixty four pages, uh, is or forty eight or whatever it was when they were oversized. Well, that's about uh, half was, the series. Half the series was regular size, and then it went to the bigger size. Yeah. So one of those double sized issues is enough for me for a while and then i'll come back into that one later it's not something to make a reading project out of (laughs) no not for me at least well you know just before we get to our books uh, one of the things we've talked about recently was some of the uh, silver age books and some of the silver age tropes that went on and i had commented to some extent that as much as i love some of that i do have to do it now in smaller doses because if I try to do too much, then I tire of it and it, it loses its uh, luster for me. And with some of the reading projects you've had, I, I, I would have difficulty for exactly that reason. And I don't know if it's my reading stamina has gone down because I do reading a lot of comics. I do find it harder to sit through long prose reading which is sad because I used to be a voracious reader of prose books and it's just harder now. But, you know, similarly with older comics that are a bit more word intensive. Makes it sound like I'm dumb. I, I can't, I can't read the word good, you know, <laughs> but it's just, it's harder. It's harder for me to do. Well, I find to read a more word intensive comic, I just need to have a little bit more free time to do it. And I mean, this, the same is true for, for, you know, a novel. Uh, but I also find, and this is probably a byproduct of getting old, but I also find that if I'm sitting in quiet and reading a novel, I start to get sleepy, which I never mm. used to. I used to be able to just, you know, power right through them. Right. So I, my, my novel reading has, uh, I think we are getting old, Paul. Yeah. Well, I, it's not a matter of think. I know I'm getting old <laughs> and I have you by a few years. <laughs> So, you know, you'll get here. <laughs> anyway, you'll always be ahead of me, though. I will. 
until I until I stop, and then I'll give you a chance to catch <laughs> up. But I'm not in any rush to do that. Same. Uh, so. Uh, you gave me the choice of the two and having had the most minute familiarity with Magnus and minute is really the word. Uh, I chose that as my one. And since it came out first, I'm going to do it first, I guess. Sounds good to me. And the credits on it, on it are that it's written by Jim Shooter penciled by Art Nichols, who I was not familiar with. I looked him up online and I saw that I have seen other of his work over the years uh, but I was just un- unaware of his name. It's inked by Bob Layton, who anybody who listens to this show would likely know who Bob Layton is, and Catherine Bollinger, who I'm not familiar with. It's colored by Janet Jackson. I do not believe that is the wardrobe malfunction Janet Jackson. <laughs> it's lettered by Jade Mode. Cover artist is Art Nichols and Bob Layton. Edited by Don Perlin, who I mostly know from his stint as an artist on the defenders okay and the editor-in-chief is jim shooter and as is the case because i get lazy and because i have a full-time job i stole my synopsis from uh, one of one of the uh, wiki sites in his undersea base 1a recounts how he and the other free will robots came to be 1a was constructed in 3590 a.d to fight on the side of the Earthlings in the Martian uprising of that year. He was the first robot officer in the Solar Fleet, being assigned to the cruiser Ottawa, serving under Captain Greer. The Ottawa prevailed in battle against the rebels over Sirtis Major, but in the process was hit by a proton torpedo. This caused surges in the ship's power field that shorted out most of the 600 robots on board. One A's systems crashed momentarily, and after he rebooted, he realized he had become self-aware due to the power surge. One A went to the bridge to convince Captain Greer to abandon ship and was shocked to find that another robot, E6, had become self-aware and was attacking Captain Greer. One A was able to destroy E6, but not before Captain Greer had died. As the ship exploded, One A used an escape pod to return to Earth. He built an undersea home and spent the next several centuries trying to figure out how he had gained self-awareness. Around the year 3610 AD, which makes no sense to me because that's only 20 years later, 3590 to 3610. Right. And it just says he spent, spent several centuries, but whatever. Around the year 3610 AD, he came to the conclusion that the odds of a random power fluctuation inducing self-awareness in a robot were approximately 11 billion to 1 per century. At that time, there were approximately 15 billion robots on in North, North Am, which I assume is North America. In 3976, 1A took in a foundling named Magnus. Seeing how quickly the number of robots was increasing and the consequent rise in the probability of more self-aware robots, such as E6 occurring, 1A raised Magnus to be a savior of his people. He taught Magnus the art of fighting, in particular the ability to make his flesh hard enough to be able to destroy robots. He also implanted him with a device that allowed him to listen in on the communications of all robots. To conclude his story, 1A summarizes the events of 4000 AD, essentially the entire contents of the original 1960s Magnus comics. In particular, he shows a flashback of Magnus destroying the ThinkBot T1. 
Looking at the day's newspaper, 1A mentions an article claiming that Senator Klain denies seeking presidency. He then sees an article about Magnus and Dr. Teresa Giordino investigating the Great Lakes Power Complex earlier in the week and destroying a free will robot found there. Dr. Giordino speculates that power fluctuations are creating the free will robots and that there may be as many as 15 million living in North Am. Magnus expresses some doubt to 1A about killing robots when they appear to be sentient. But 1A tells him that robots can't be killed because they're not actually alive. Let's put a pin in that point because I want to discuss that with you, John. Just then, Magnus... That's the main crux point of the story. Yeah. Just then, Magnus picks up a broadcast sent to all robots in North Am from O1X, telling any free will robots that can hear him to be patient and await further instructions. The time of their uprising is near. As another free will robot named W23 hears this news, she starts to hesitate in her duties and is almost taken to a shop by her owner until another free will robot intervenes and convinces the master that it's not necessary. Magnus takes his leave of the undersea base and returns to North Am. He approaches his love interest, Lija Klein, but the two are almost killed by a free will robot crashing a gardening truck into them. Magnus and the robot fight, at the same time arguing about whether or not the robot is actually alive. Since Magnus is clearly getting the upper hand, the robot takes Lija hostage and orders Magnus to jump off the roof of the building they are on to his death. Magnus launches himself at the robot, destroying it, and rescues Lija. The North M Council meets to discuss the situation. President Claiborne argues for negotiation, but Magnus counsels against capitulation, suggesting that he set about dismantling the free will robots. Senator Klain agrees. Later, 01X confronts Klain in his office. He counsels Klain to take powers from Claiborne and open negotiations with the free wills. But Klain instead has 01X attacked. 01X escapes by leaping from the building onto a passing car. Magnus and Lija travel to the Allegheny sector of the Gothlands, assuming that it is most likely the pl- it is the most likely place for free wills to be hiding. Lija uses her clairvoyant powers to scan the minds of the people in the area until she discovers an area that passerbys have noticed robots going into. Magnus discovers a large gathering of free wills, including W23, in the Tarentum Millsphere at a meeting at a meeting led by 01X. He calls Major York Timbuk and tells him to bring a squadron of riot robs. As the meeting starts, 01X relates the story of T1 and how Magnus destroyed him. In 01X's telling, T1 simply wanted a place for himself, but Magnus exposed himself and declares that T1 was a killer bent on destroying all humanity. 01X accuses Magnus of being a killer himself, but Magnus says he has never killed, he has only dismantled robots. 01X then calls out W23 and asks him if he feels alive. W23 answers that he does. 01X tells Magnus to destroy W23 if he feels so confident that he's not alive. Before Magnus can act, Timbuk arrives with the riot robs and bursts through the side of the tower, attacking the free wills. As 01X escapes, the robots attempt to kill Magnus without success. One free will, TM6, attempts to kill Lisa by throwing her off a ledge. Magnus finds her alive, and after calling for medical help, yells at Timbuk for attacking without orders to do so. Senator Klain 
is informed by PS4, a non-free will robot, that Leisure is in critical condition. However, his approval ratings have soared in sympathy for his daughter and claim muses that every clown has a silver lining. So, this is kind of what I anticipated. And while in the 1960s it would have been a little bit more, you know, unique and different, uh, you know, between the Terminator stories and uh, Battlestar Galactica, you know, I've seen enough of sentient robots and sentient AI that it's not as unique as it might have been in the 60s. Uh, even by, you know, by the 90s when this was rebooted, that, you know, those properties existed already. So uh, I think there's a little bit of creativity, you know, going with the originality of the original series and possibly, and having not read this original series, I can't say this for certain, but possibly following a little bit of the formula of what we saw in those uh, properties as well, uh, which I find interesting. And for a sentient robot to declare that <laughs> that destroying sentient robots is not killing, to me, seemed to be a very surprising plot point. And like I said, I'd like to kind of discuss that a little bit more because uh, I have a hard time kind of... Uh, accepting that but just more from a storytelling point of view i think this book kind of goes with what we talked about about storytelling first because it's chock full of story there's a lot that goes on here and there's a lot to take in but uh there's a lot of narration and backstory and exposition especially in the first half yeah yeah absolutely but i don't think the art really suffers for that concept because i think the art is pretty sharp in this it's 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 a little different. Again, you know, I don't really, I'm not really familiar with uh, what's him, Art Nichols to speak of. Uh, like I said, I know I've read books that he's drawn. I would have liked to have maybe pulled one of them out and compared it to to this to see how his artwork looks when it's not inked by Bob Layton. Because I think Bob Layton is an extremely strong inker and, and does tend to... Uh, I don't want to say overpower, because I think it's the wrong word. But he does tend to, to strongly clean up whatever he's working with. And mm. sometimes the stylistic efforts of the of the pencils do get consumed by the clean style of Leighton. Uh, and whereas more often than not, I would consider that to be a negative. In Leighton's case, I consider it to be a positive, because, and it's probably just because I happen to be a fan of his style. Uh, it, it does have a very antiseptic feel to it, the art. And I think that may be intentional, you know, because of the whole robot theme. Mm. You know, the colors, you know, the, there's very few panels that are, are particularly dark or dreary. Uh, everything's, you know, mo for the most part, everything is is fairly well lit, uh, and and every, you know, except for when they go down into the uh, streets, for what amounts to about two pages worth of uh, art, uh, everything's very clean. So I, I found that to be an interesting stylistic thing. Uh, but over, overall, so I thought the storytelling was good, and I, I I enjoyed reading this, and I would be curious to read more. So now I'll pass it to you. 
So, you know, this, when I read this book, I feel like it is very intentionally taking the 1960s robot fighting comic and using that as a starting point. So Russ Manning, and uh, for people who've read um, like the Star Wars newspaper strips, um, that's the main thing I associate with him. I know he has a lot of other credits under his belt, but he, you know, he's an old school comic artist and he did the art beautifully for the original uh, Magnus series. And I think that the visual style, certainly the design aesthetic of the characters is rooted in that 1960s comic. And so everything has, even though it's set way in the future, 4001, everything has a retro feel. It's like you're watching Jetsons reruns in the 90s or 2000s. You know, it's just that sort of retro feel. Um, And I'm glad that you picked up on 1A talking and emphasizing about how robots aren't alive and therefore you can kill them because that is very much the justification that is used in the original mode of storytelling. Robots are robots. Everyone in a 1965 comic book store knows that robots aren't real. They're vacuum cleaners that have a little bit more action to them, you know? There's no consideration in the 60s that robots might have intelligence except for in science fiction uh, stories. Now as we're in 1991, and you're right, Terminator's been around. Battlestar Galactica, I think the original Battlestar Galactica didn't do a whole lot with artificial intelligence. I could be wrong in my memory of it. I think a lot of that came from the 2000s version. Um with the with the Cylons, you know, sort of trying to transplant humanity as the dominant life form or whatever. But I could be mistaken on that. I was um, not a uh, a religious viewer of the original series. So yeah, I watched them all because I had to before I could watch the new one because that's just where my brain works. <laughs> Whenever my father in law at the time said, "Hey, Battlestar Galactica is really worth watching," I was like, "Okay." Give me a couple weeks. I'll get back to you. And I mainlined the entire original series and its sequel series, Galactica 1980. And I don't recommend anyone do that. But um, but anyways, so yeah. Because when you have stories in the public consciousness in 1991, like The Measure of a Man from Star Trek The Next Generation, and um, the idea that robots aren't just robots that they could be people and also if you grew up watching star wars and reading star wars those droids act like real people and yet the bar is like we don't want your kind in here and it's just like wow you have created a slave class um so a lot of that thought i feel like is behind the motivations to start this story and take it in a different direction. So who are you if you are Magnus robot fighter and you have been commissioned to fight robots to protect the humans, but the robots you're fighting are living beings forced to be slaves. It becomes a very different question. Yeah, it's, and I can't... it's easy to accept 
in the Battlestar Galactica sense where they are trying to usurp humanity. Mm hmm. But because now it's a war, it's a war between, you know, equals. Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but when you have, you know, one that is kind of the worker class against the, uh, you know, the, the upper class or, you know, or, or some sort of semblance of that kind of relationship, it's not quite as easy to just sit and say, oh, that's OK. Mm hmm. But, you know, the bottom, so, the bottom line is ultimately the, the level of intelligence and the level of aggression. Right. And I like this idea that, you know, the vast majority of robots are still basically just animated toasters. But some of them, the, whatever that spark is, uh, metaphorically or literally, who knows, that is turning some of them self-aware, um, it is becoming more and more common and they're communicating. I, I really, really like the sequence in this story where um, Zero One X is sending out a message, and like you see a whole bunch of individual robots noticing and realizing that they're not alone. And that was really cool. It's like, I mean, they're robots. They got the you know insectoid eyes and whatever. But it's just like, can you imagine that? I. I I'm not alone. There are others out there like me. If I can find other robots who are thinking like I am, maybe I can have a better life or something, you know? It's just like, anyways, my brain was all sorts of fired up by the different ideas and thoughts being presented here. And to be honest, it's been long enough, and I've only read through this series once before, and it's been long enough. I can't remember exactly how a lot of those themes play out, but I do know that they are played with and they are themes of the series I got for at think, least some time to come i've got to think that in order to make this a successful series you're gonna you're gonna have to have a distinction between the uh the robots you know all the ones with with self-awareness you're gonna have to have a distinction between those that are aggressively attacking people and mm -hmm. those that just want to live in peace and once you have that distinction, now you could have a situation where Magnus is trying to distinguish which are which, and he's not going to be so quick to destroy the ones who do not have aggressive tendencies because he's not at war with them. And he's got to try and then what the, do you do when you go back to... Well, I'm sorry. And, and I think he's got to be trying to find a way to integrate the ones who just want to live in peace into society somehow. Right. To try to build some sort of, you know, way of life, kind of, you know, Charles Xavier's day of coexistence, right? Yeah. Or, or if you want to go with the, uh, you know, you want, you want to go with the, the motif of like slavery and, mm -hmm. you know, how, how do you, how do you uh, integrate the now freed slaves into society? And I don't think we found the formula for that because it was a, an extremely slow process that in some ways is still ongoing. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then another interesting question becomes, well, what about once Magnus realizes that this really is a thing, that robots really are alive? What about that one robot that was my mentor that told me they weren't? What was up with that? Yeah, what's, what's his motivation to do that? Is he trying to protect Magnus by eliminating any conscience he might have in the situation 
or is he a self-loathing robot? You know, what, what's I for- the situation with him? I forget exactly how it plays out in the story, but here are a couple of thoughts I have around it. So this is me thinking about the story, not the story as ideas itself. But um, two two ideas. One, Superboy, when he first faced off with Bizarro, it is said at least ten times in the course of that story, Bizarro is made of inorganic matter. Bizarro is not alive. And they say that so many times in the story, despite every single piece of evidence to the contrary, thinking, feeling, interacting, building relationships, seeking love, all these things that Bizarro does in that story. So the, the end of the story, when Superboy destroys Bizarro, we have been told over and over again, he wasn't alive, except that he was. Any honest reading of that story, that Bizarro was a living, breathing creature that Superboy just killed, but we're given the rationalization that he's not. So that's one of the things I think about whenever 1A sends Magnus out to kill all the robots, saying, oh, they're not alive. It's okay, you can kill them. But we're finding evidence that they are. So that's one of the things I think about. And the other thing I think about is... Um, hmm, is fleeing my brain. Crap. I just, there were two I just things find it incomprehensible in my own way that a self-aware, intelligent creature, we'll go with mm-hmm. that as the description of 1A, could spend hundreds of years contemplating it and come to the conclusion that he's not alive. Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So, I, my, I, remember, I remember my other thought, and it kind of goes along right with that. People, humans, who belong to certain demographic segments of society. So we're talking, you know, racial demographics, sex-based gender demographics, those sorts of things, are often raised with ideas that are actually detrimental and harmful to their own segment of humanity. So, for example, women being raised with sexist ideas, thinking those are the right things, and then believing in them and propagating them. Um, I, I, I read a book written by a man named Dr. Kendi, and it was about the history of racism in America. And one of the thought, one of the you know positions that he takes is that racist ideas, you know, when they get into a culture you can be raised to believe that they're real, even if you are a member of the race that they are harmful against. Okay. So, so, so to try and take that, you know, into reality, uh, mm-hmm. and, and this is not meant to express any thoughts that either of us have. If anybody's listening, please don't get offended that we're even talking about this, but so just if, so right after the slaves are freed. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can accept the thought that, a slave who's lived his life being told how inferior he is or she is could start to believe that and just think of the white people as the master race effectively. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I, I can't compete with them because they're so wonderful uh, because he's had it drilled into his head his entire life. So I, I can understand how that thought process could be, 
created. Mm-hmm. What I can't be, what I still can't grasp is the thought that that person could be convinced somehow that he's not alive. So what, what I could do if I extrapolate on my first point is to say that person has been convinced that he is inferior to white people. Therefore, he feels his life is worth less than a white person's life. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not advocating this point in any way, shape or form. I'm just trying to understand the thought process here. So if you tell me one A believes that human life is more important than robot life, I can accept that he could have that mindset. But I can't think that somebody with independent thought and intelligence could be convinced that he's not alive. So let me ask you this. And I'm trying to convince you, just you know, to, to, to engage the conversation. When did Data realize he was alive? I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know if that was ever pinpointed in the series. We know that in the measure of a man, that is the argument that is presented, mm-hmm. and we as the viewers are made. Or at least, you know, strongly convinced that he is alive. Even though that episode does that, though, I know that there are plenty of viewers who will still argue that Data is a toaster with fancy software. Um, but you know, it, within the realm of the fiction, at some point, Data must have come to the determination that he was more than some of his program, that he was a living being, and that that was worth fighting for. I don't know when that happened. Well, I, um, I, I think Data, from the point when he was turned on by Dr. Soong, was an intelligent or you know, being capable of growth. And I think that really is part of the whole process of being alive, that he was capable of independent growth. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. But whether but, he's but alive or I'm, not, I, he was I think, that way think all of yourself, the beginning. Think of yourself as a child. You don't have the concept of I'm alive, I'm not alive, I'm, I'm, I'm a, an individual being, I'm sentient or whatever. You just are when you're a child. Mm-hmm. And then when, as you get older and you start learning different philosophical theories and things like that, you start contemplating the nature of life and the nature of existence. And that's when you come to that realization. So I'm thinking for data, it was probably a similar process that at some point as his programming adapted and grew he would start philosophizing over you know what what is the nature of his existence and that is when he would have realized that he's alive and different human philosophers have answered those questions in a very different and often contradictory way so i think i think largely the thing with 1a is a metaphor that some people once they're used to looking at the world a particular way aren't willing to change it. Now, the word alive for a robot, I mean, that's that's obviously just a metaphor for reality because as far as we know, there is no such thing as sentient robot life. And as far as we know, such a thing is impossible. And yet AI keeps getting farther and farther every day. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> yes. But it's just like, it's, I look at that and I think about human beings I know who are stuck in ways of thinking that to my perspective seem very backward 
and destructive, even self-destructive, and yet they think it's the best way. Well, I could understand. I could understand where people in this reality, the Magnus reality, where people might never be willing to accept the concept that a robot is alive. My problem comes in with a robot believing that a robot isn't alive when that robot does have self-awareness and sentience. Uh, and I don't know how this story plays out if at some point you find out that his motivations are, you know, not so much that he believes that, but that he, like I said, maybe he's trying to protect Magnus by eliminating the potential of his conscience, stopping him from doing what he has to do or something along those lines. And I do remember some of the plot directions for 1A, but I can't remember the motivations behind them. So I, I can't actually answer the question for the character in the story, what he ends up what Magnus ends up learning about him in the future. I just remember some of the things that happen. Um, but yeah, like I said, I feel like it's a metaphor. I, I feel like I've seen people think things about themselves that are not helpful. And yet that's just the way they see themselves. They see the world. I, I mean, think 1A might be a metaphor for that. And there are people out there who think for whatever reason that they don't deserve to live. Uh so I guess you know they, they could be something like that. I, I, I have that. I have a tough time with that concept. But uh, I think you know any of us who don't have, who don't readily accept that concept should be thankful that we don't. Uh, mm. But it, it, it's it's I love when a story can just kind of give you these kind of questions to to have to mull over, and it just right. you know it it seems to me that Jim Shooter would be in a position where. Having finished writing this issue, he's got just so many places he could take this to. And that's that's just a great thing. I, I got to think as a writer, which I am not, but uh, I, I got to think for a writer, that's a great thing. Just to have all those options, especially if you're trying to do an ongoing series that, you know, you don't envision ending. I mean, I know it did end, but, you know, I don't, I don't, it went for over 60 issues. It went for it went for a very, very long time. <clears throat> yeah, I, I may have to see about getting access to this series and reading some more of it. But do you know how many times I say that one on this show? <laughs> I would imagine probably every episode, there's something that happens. that's like, Oh, that seems interesting. I want more of that. Yeah. It's not quite every episode because we've had some episodes where it was like, boy, that book was God awful. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think some of those episodes have been a lot of fun because we've had one making fun of certain things that we've read. Uh, but it certainly doesn't leave me wanting to read more. The one, the one that uh, st stands out to me, there are two that really stand out, actually. We did an issue of the uh, comic adaptation of F Troop, which was just horrible. Uh, mm. And we did the final issue where most of the characters get killed of Combat Kelly and the Deadly Dozen. Oh, really? It's terrible. Oh. It is terrible. That's a Marvel series, yes. right? Yeah. It was just so so poorly executed uh, that that we we you know we we ended up making fun of it for most of the uh, episode. But that said, this is not that at all. This, <laughs> this leaves me wanting more. Now I do question the uh, the clothing fashions of the future. <laughs> well, you notice that Leija changes outfits partway through her original outfit is very much what she was being drawn in and in the 60s 
mm-hmm. and they get her out of that by the end of the issue. Yeah, Magnus is so out. It, it looks it, like it, it's yeah, it looks, uh, inspired by like gladiator movies or something. Mm-hmm. He's got the the shorts and the tunic, and it just kind of it could be a one piece for all I know. I envision. I kind it of expect people piece. on a. Star Trek the motion picture. I feel like this is like leisure wear for that that fashion sense. Yeah, maybe. So, uh, ready for Solar? Well, let's rate this one first. Uh, okay. I don't know that the cover jumps out at me as being as eye catching as I'd want it to be for a number one issue. It's well drawn. But I don't care for the trade dress, the uh, you know the where it says Magnus Robot Fighter. It feels like that's really forced into it, uh, and it, you know while I usually applaud it, seeming like it's an, a, a a scene from the comic, there's something about it that's just not grabbing me quite as much as it should. Again, it's well drawn, but I don't know if if the uh, composition of it is exactly what I would have done. I think I might have gone. A, a little, I definitely would have gone different. I'm not sure exactly what I would have done. I think I would have maybe turned it around a little bit and made Magnus much more prominent, made him bigger so that he was kind of in the foreground instead of in the background and put Leisure and the robot more in the background. Uh, I think that might have made it a little bit more compelling. So the cover, I'm going to say, it's well since it's well drawn, I'm going to give it a C+. Plus. But again, just composition-wise, I think it could have been better. The interior art I find to be well-paced. It's well-drawn. It probably lacks a little dynamism at some points where it could just be a little bit more exciting. Uh, But overall, I think it's it's solid. And I'm going to give it just a solid B on the art. And the story is what won me over. I really like the story, and I like, as I said, any story that's going to make me start talking about the uh, moral implications of things uh, really just works for me. Uh, So I'm going to give the story an A, and overall I'll give the book a B. So I hear what you're saying about the cover, and I do kind of agree with you um, that I'm not entirely sure. I think, think honestly, part of the problem is that the – well, two things. The – the title is so large on the cover that it – and with the title being so large and so much on the bottom of the image taken up with just floor space, so that there's not a lot of room for actual – the story that the cover is trying to convey. Um, and the second thing is that there's so much robot detritus just filling in the space in the background that it just feels like – there's too much going on in that space. I actually really like the size of the characters. My memory is that Leisha is very much a co-player with Magnus for a lot of this series. Um, and so having the, having them being presented as a duo on the cover, even though he's the title, um, I like that she's in the foreground and he's running up to help her. Uh, I'm going to give the cover a B. Um, the interior art, I love the retro feel. I, I, uh, I like the character designs. Um, when I first saw this, I was a younger man 
And that outfit that Leech is wearing, that was important to me. Um, <laughs> but just just the visual designs of the robots, I love their bug eyes and their spindly frames. Um, I think Magnus in his in his like Roman tunic or whatever is really effective. One of the things that really grabs me about this is the realism in the way that the characters are depicted, the people in this are depicted. Uh, when there's action, they're in, you know, the action is fantastic. When it's not action, I feel like these could be frames from a film or a TV show. Um, and that really works well for me. Again, I, I'm just paging through and I'm looking at the, the first attack by the robot in the car and him coming out looking like a spidery menace. It's just, I really, really like the art and the art's going to give an A plus from me. It's just an aesthetic. I really enjoy the story in this for me is only hard by the vast amount of exposition in the beginning and the sort of confusing way that it's presented with the white on black and the extra like, sort of trash narration of like, you know, the what's going on in his robot brain as he's talking, you know, sub ethereal communication, one on one tachyon, blah blah blah. Like that's kind of distracting. Um the also the narration is a lot to swallow right out of the gate with the book. Now it does help to establish this very much as a sequel to the original Magnus series which is in stark contrast, or we're going to talk about a second with solar. So it, it serves its purpose and it's good. And it, and it helps us to set the scene for where we were with our, our human robot interactions versus where we're going with our human robot interactions. And so it serves its purpose. It's just a lot right at the very beginning. Um, but once things get underway, I really enjoy this. I want to give the story on this an A minus and the book overall. Yeah, the book overall is an A for me. Cool. Um, I can't say I disagree with anything you said. It's just, you know, <laughs> just a, as is always the case, you know, your mileage could vary a little. Um, just, just to, you know, before we put this one in the past, uh, two thoughts came to me when you were saying yours. Uh, I read this in the last couple of days, so I was also a younger man when I read it. <laughs> as you mentioned, you were a younger man. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, uh, I liked what you you know you kind of mentioned it i liked that the narration at the beginning sets it up as a sequel and the fact that you know he's able to shooter is able to kind of you know encapsulate the entire prior series in just a couple of pages mm -hmm. so I, I like that aspect of it even though t1 only has one panel there it's like that's that is an actual reference to an actual story for the original series because I've read it, and then they refer to it later in dialogues. So, like that was a moment, you know, from the history that you know has some import. Right. But yeah, it, it was a very you got a lot done and not a lot of pages. Yeah, and and I thought done well. All right, so now so, we can move on to Solar Man of the Atom. Right, which the previous series was Doctor Solar. Man of the Atoms, so a little bit of a name change. Uh, the credits for this, as they're presented in the comic, the writer is Jim Shooter, as well as the previous book we talked about. Uh, the penciler is D. David Perlin, who is Don Perlin. He was the editor of Magnus. He's the penciler on this. 
the inker and editor are Bob Layton. So a little bit of a, of a hat swap for those two gentlemen. The colorist is listed as Catherine Bollinger, and the letterer is listed as Jade. And so I looked it up, and that was Jade Mode. Um, the cover is from Barry Windsor Smith. Uh, the cover is a bit surreal. We can talk more about that. It's just basically just um, the main character, whose name we eventually discover is Dr. Selesky, kind of floating above the earth with all of these energy bloops coming out of him his solar man of the atoms so here's i did not go to wiki um i thought i did my usual uh live recap here the story is called second death part one no place like home and we open with um a human being whom we don't know falling from space to earth he is naked so he's in, in a lot of the uh, a lot of the art is blue. So he's Doctor Manhattaning it from space down to his apartment. When he goes into his apartment, and starts getting dressed. Things feel a little bit weird, and it's really weird when another him runs into the bedroom, about to hit him in the face with uh, a bust. So these are two different versions of the same man. Uh, the one we've been with from space is white haired. He was naked. He's putting on clothes. The other one is darker-haired, wearing glasses. He has a business suit. And it's a really weird encounter. So when um, – I'm going to call these two guys Dr. Selesky and Space Selesky. So Space Selesky vlorps out the window and flies away, and Dr. Selesky is left wondering what's going on. Space Selesky is like, okay, um, this is a little bit strange. I just ran into myself. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, let's – scan the radio waves and he finds a crime report of a prison riot so he goes to the prison and he can just splorp through walls and space he basically just goes from wherever he wants to wherever he wants whenever he decides to do it so he shows up in space at the um I'm sorry he shows up in prison at the riot and he uses his powers uh to bedazzle and befuddle and bone all the different rioters whenever somebody shoots him with a gun it just goes through him and there's an energy released out his back uh there's a burst of energy through his clothes so his clothes get punctured by the bullet his existence gets punctured by the bullet um and the people near him basically get melted into protoplasm by, by the release of energy and he's a uh, kind of surprised by this but then eventually not Unplussed, huh? Jacket's ruined. That's frustrating. So he flies away, and we go to a nuclear power plant. Doctor Selesky, the more human counterpart, uh, he left work late, and he's come right back to work. A little bit surprised, but there's a big project going on. He, you know, he's awake. He's a career man, so he decides to go back in. And Doctor Selesky is a little bit timid. He's a little bit um, of a nebbish. But he is there to help with the project. There is um, a woman to whom he is very obviously attracted, and she's friendly, but she's also in charge of this project. So, you know, while he's stumbling over his words, she doesn't really have a whole lot of time for him. Also, whenever he is very, he's very disconcerted by having run into a copy of himself in his apartment. He doesn't have anyone to talk to about this. So, whenever he mentions 
to Gail that he might have been seeing things, she's like, okay, look, you need to um, get yourself together. So anyways, Space Celeski keeps on flying around, sees a sunken submarine, pulls it out of the, uh, the water and rescues the people inside. It's full of uh, nuclear missiles. So he decides to like take those with him and take them into space because nobody needs nuclear missiles. Uh, one of the people, one of the officers on board shoots him because he's stealing their missiles and that's not okay. Um, the story is interrupted by an insert backup story that we'll come back to. Anyways, he flies all the missiles into space and basically blows them up and then absorbs all the energy because he can just do that. He has solar energy and nuclear powers. Um, goes back down to Earth. Change scenes to Dr. Seleski. He continues talking to his various co-workers. Um, but he's having trouble finding anyone to really relate to because he's very socially awkward. Space Seleski is kind of hanging out outside of a, a building in the city. He's sitting with a lot of the homeless population, and he's new in the area, so they're not really sure what to make of him. And at first, he doesn't seem too friendly. So they're like, okay, fine, whatever, we'll just go over here. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he backpedals and talks to them more and accepts their drink that they offer him. And he kind of hangs out with the homeless people for a while and um, makes friends. Sorry, scrolling through all the homeless stuff. So Dr. Seleski goes to a diner. He's done his stuff. He's done some stuff at the nuclear power plant. He's done some work. He's left because he's not really being any helpful. And he decides to call his psychiatrist. It's two in the morning. Psychiatrist is not too happy about being called at two in the morning to a diner. But Dr. Seleski, I guess, is a little bit of a neurotic and the psychiatrist is kind of used to it. And Seleski's going to buy him dinner. And so, yeah, he's happy with that. Um, they talk about things, and the psychiatrist isn't really super helpful. You kind of get the feeling that he's used to humoring Dr. Seleski and not really taking him that seriously. So Seleski eventually goes back home, and once again, Space Seleski is sitting there, and he's like, who are you? What are you doing in my apartment? And I'm going to call the police. So Space Seleski is like, okay, fine. I'll leave where the police even get here. I just want to warn you. I'm not going to stand by and watch you make the same mistakes. I'll kill you if I have to. And we start to get to the impression that the Space Seleski is a future version of Dr. Seleski. They're not just copies. They're the same person at two different points in time. So somehow Space Seleski has come back in time a bit and is interacting with um, the world from earlier in his life. And then, yeah. Space Seleski leaves. He goes back to the homeless people. He settles in with them. And Dr. Seleski realizes that he is not hallucinating because Space Seleski left behind his jacket. The same jacket he had put on earlier, but the jacket now has bullet holes in it. And that's evidence to Dr. Seleski that this is a real encounter with a real person, not just a hallucination. So we are left with a little bit of a... Um, not so much as a cliffhanger, but so much as like the feeling that this is like the end of a chapter in a story that is nowhere near finished, but is only just beginning for these uh, these two versions of Dr. Seleski. And uh, Space Seleski sits down with the homeless people, 
And he's like, well, I can't help us with any food, but I can keep you warm. And he radiates some solar energy to keep them warm at night as they all sleep on their stairs. And that's the end of the story. Do you want to talk about this one and then go back to the backup? Or you want to go and talk about the backup right now, too? Uh, whatever you prefer is okay. I, I, you know what? I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of leaning towards let's talk about this one, actually, now that I think about it. Okay. Uh, For me, this was a lot more, well, I was going to say a lot more sci-fi, but the robot, fighting robots in the future, that's sci-fi if nothing else is. Um, this is a different kind of science fiction, but I feel like there's, you know, overlapping timelines. Um, there's the superpowers thing going on with the guy from with the with the space energy. Uh, the art style in this, for me, feels very down to earth. Like when they're in a room and there's equipment, I feel like they're in a room with this equipment. Uh, when the people are talking, I feel like they're actually really talking and having a conversation. And I say all that, but it's just like there's there's just a, a heavy dose of realism in the way that the characters are presented. It's more substance than it is flash, if that makes any sense. Um, when Space Celeski is flying through the sky with his jacket and pants, it doesn't feel like superhero action. It feels like a guy floating through the sky with a jacket and pants and his hair's, you know, sort of flapping in the wind a little bit. So I really liked the art styles on this. Um, I think intentionally you are still left at the end of this issue with a big question of what exactly is going on. Um, I said that this is two different versions of Seleski from two different points of the timeline and that's partly informed by my knowledge of the story. I'm not entirely sure how clear it would have been to a brand new reader for the first time. Um, so what were your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think that necessarily would jump out to everyone. Uh, but I do think it's there. Um, I did have the same sensation. Uh, but it was more or less when, you know, when, when Space Seleski comes to Dr. Seleski's apartment that that started to come together before that I hadn't been able to, you know, before that it was just a total mystery. You know what, what's going on here. I don't get it. Uh, but I like that. I, I also agree with your, your take that it, it feels like the first chapter of an ongoing story, uh, which is, which is a plus and a minus to be honest with you, because on a plus level, it makes you want to read more mm-hmm. on the minus level when you're putting this out as a monthly book and you got to wait a month to get to the next story, you want mm-hmm. just a little bit more meat on the bone for each chapter. So leaving you just kind of totally wondering what's going on might have been a, a detriment when this was, you know, first coming out as opposed to, say, reading it in trade. Right. So... I don't know. You know, it's another case of your mileage may vary. Uh, it also might be a, an era thing. I think even though we were reading comics in 1991, we're kind of used to how comic storytelling has changed in the almost 30 years since then. And I wonder how much more this would have felt acceptable in 1991. And I don't know, because we can't go back and be ourselves from then. Yeah, and, and 1991 was during the era when I was not reading comics. That's mm-hmm. what, what I say is that's when I realized I was too old to read comics, and it wasn't until I got <laughs> a little older that I started reading them again. Um, 
But, I mean, first of all, I'm going to go back to the beginning here. I happen to be a Barry Windsor Smith art lover. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like the cover. Again, I don't like the separation of the title by the black box around it. I, I would much rather it was the same exact title, but just replace the black with the background color from the, uh, you know, from the rest of the page. And I think the cover would be much more compelling looking to me. But the artwork is gorgeous. Looking at the cover gallery, they stick with the idea of the the logo in a rectangular box for a lot of the run. Yeah. The box becomes smaller, but it's it's that's what that's what they stick with. If you just made the part that wasn't the words opaque and let the color come through from the cover itself, I would prefer it. Yeah. But that's that's a, it, that's really kind of a minor quibble. I still think it's it's a dynamite cover. The interior art, I agree with you that it it's the framing of the shots is really good. The action sequences are compelling. Uh, the only thing is, I'm not a huge fan of Don Perlin's facial artwork. Uh, and it, in in many ways, in a story like this, it's a quibble because this isn't a book that's focusing on faces all that much anyway. Uh, but beyond that, I, I really like the, the pacing of it and the the, the the choices he made as far as angles and, and perspective. I, I think it was, you know, it's, it's very well laid out. So I do like the artwork in here. Uh, story-wise, it's interesting that it didn't, like reading the first half of the story, the whole question was, well, if you had the power to do so, would you do what he's doing? Would you take the military arsenal? Would you, you know, would you go in and, and try and quell this uh, prison riot, even at the expense of some people are going to die from, you know, the uh, emission of your energy, uh, which didn't, you know, aren't huge dilemmas. It became much more fascinating to me when the the concept of it being the same guy in two different times of his life. When that presented itself, it became a much more compelling story that, that I wanted to see more of. Because I want to see how that and it's plays interesting. out. I'm going back and looking at that first scene where he goes after the people in the prison. And it's not like there's any big motivation here. He's just he's floating in space and he's kind of feels kind of bored. So he's like, what is there to do tonight? And that's when he just like hears about the prison and decides to go help. Um so this is not a superhero out doing super heroics because no one else can, and that's what he feels compelled to do. He's just a guy. <laughs> mm. And I feel like it's a different take on things because um, as the series goes forward, while there are some superhero trappings, I don't think Solar ever really becomes a superhero. In fact, whenever um, whenever a romantic relation develop, relationship develops – for me, this story becomes a lot more about what is it like to be a romantic couple when one of the members is Captain Adam, basically, or Dr. Manhattan, that kind of super-powered person beyond all reason. That's your husband. And, you know, you have the husband and wife who are doing this relationship, and it becomes very much about that dynamic in ways that I really enjoyed. And here it's just, since it's, you know, since it's him on a relationship, it's just like, okay, 
what is he doing and why is he doing it? And we're not really sure about that yet. Yeah, and that's that, you know, when he's saying it, it's something to the effect of he'll kill him before he lets him make the same mistake again. You, you know, you, you okay, what did he do? You know, he's, he's working in that, that lab and, you know, maybe he invented something that, that could destroy humanity or something. You know, like, where did it go? What did it do? What's the MacGuffin? You know, you, you mm-hmm. sit there wondering that. And that, that could be the driving factor for a while in the story. And actually, we get it, we get an indication of how long it might take because we're told with the backup that the backup is a 10-part serial that gives Solar's origin. And it's going to spread out over 10 issues. So it could be like, you know, the better part of a year that we are figuring out what exactly this whole story is all about. Um, and if you like Gray Windsor Smith art, he does the backup of this. It's pretty, uh, pretty beautiful. Mm-hmm. Not if we already go there. I was just mentioning it because of kind of what you said. Right. So I guess do you want to give that, uh, that synopsis? That should be a yeah, so that's, fairly quick one. It's a bit more straightforward. Yeah, it's called Alpha and Omega. Um, and, you know, Barry Windsor Smith is the artist. And let me just get back to the Mike's Amazing World page so I can give credits because they're not in front of me. Jim Shooter is writing. So Jim Shooter is writing the main series and the backup stories. Barry Windsor Smith is drawing with Bob Layton still doing inks. And Jade Mode is still lettering. And now Janet Jackson is coloring. And so Dr. Selesky, and this is this is very evidently set before the main story. It becomes very clear very quickly that's well I just completely said that wrong. Uh, um but in any case, there's an explosion and Dr. Selesky is freaking out because his nuclear reactor is on fire. And he's thinking as he's driving through this town toward the nuclear reactor, uh, everyone's here is dead. I killed them all. I don't know what went wrong, but things are very bad. So he gets to the nuclear plant. Everybody's in crisis mode. They're like, we're glad you're here. Dr. Selesky, we're losing closure. Um, basically a whole lot of language that says things are going bad very, very quickly. And Dr. Selesky looks over at Gail. And in the main story, he was attracted to her, but they had very little of any kind of rapport in their interaction. Now he's looking at her kind of longingly, thinking about the fact that she was very obviously out on a date tonight. And I don't know, you know, with whom or what, but he's sort of, you know, sad about that. Um, And he's thinking about the fact that she is dead. They're all dead. Everything's going to explode, and it's bad. Um, And as things continue to build inside the reactor, he just kind of gets introspective, and we're left on a cliffhanger uh, that maybe there's nothing else to do except to go out to the accelerators and bang 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 them with a wrench. And then it ends with an interesting idea that is experimental, I'm not sure exactly how successful it is. It's probably in the eye of the beholder. But there is a two-page spread in this issue that is one piece of a huge single comic panel image that will be 
the final image of the origin story. And in each of the 10 issues, you're going to get a two-page spread that forms one portion, one-tenth of this image. And um, we can't really see anything from it here except that there's a portion of a city and there are hints of smoke. And that's all we can see. So it's not really anything you can tell there. I know what this is a part of, but I don't know how obvious it is from looking at it. No, it's not. It's Anyways. Not. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I was wondering why there was the inclusion of this page. So that that at least answers that for me. Uh, you got to be left with the feeling that whatever it is he does to prevent this explosion, if he does prevent it, is what his future self is coming back to stop. Okay. I'm glad you put that together because when I said earlier this takes place before everything, I realized that's exactly wrong. This origin story for this Dr. Selesky is after the Dr. Selesky events that we saw in the main story. So, yes. So this is how this, this, uh, this, this is, story is how we turn Dr. Selesky into space Selesky. Right. Which that was just my terminology. That's not anything. From yeah, the story. no, I, I, I understand. But, but it was a good way to distinguish <laughs> the two. He starts out in space. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, we didn't get a lot in this story. This, this almost seemed reminiscent to me of the beginning of uh, the book, The Stand, uh, if you've ever read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when uh, I can't even think of what his name is, Campion, I think, is is rushing out of the, the, the base because the flu bug is going and he's just trying to get out of there as quickly as he can and ends up spreading it, you know. Yeah, of course, it would have spread anyway, but that's besides the point. Uh, but that I don't know. That's the feel I got from this is just the, the total hopelessness as he's running out of there. Uh, I absolutely love the splash page, the way the light is played with on it and everything. It's just I think it's terrific. Yeah, I wonder what went wrong. Yeah, I, well, I, I assume they're going to tell us at some point. Um. I just just clarifying which page you meant, like the one with the the like large lit up reactor in the background and the welcome to the Skokie sign. Is that what you're looking? No, at? I'm actually looking at uh the the first page of this story where he's standing in his kitchen and the explosion is oh! happening. Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't flip back far enough. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing, amazing image. And he's just he's just in his pajamas. This guy was getting ready to go to bed. Maybe he had like a glass of milk, you know. Um. But yeah, the lighting from the from the super bright explosion at the plant, yeah, this just made everything go a lot worse for his night. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's a very very short sequence here. What is? It? Let me just see. Not counting that two page spread. It's one, two, three, four, five, six pages. So I mean, it's it's a very short thing. It's there's very little in the way of dialogue, even the narration. Uh, boxes are you know brief so you know this this is an extremely quick read uh but i i kind of like the concept of giving you this in dribs and drabs while you're giving you the rest of the story in dribs and drabs and it, it's you know it's something that that postdates it but it gives me a feeling of things that became popular in storytelling on tv in the last 20 years with shows like Lost and things like that, where it's like, we're going to let something happen and then let you figure out how it happened along the way Mm -hmm. and, and why it happened. And, you know, all, all of those things. Uh, 
and that's the feeling I got from this. There was no no deep uh, moral implications for me, but just the whole idea of just the mystery of what's going on and what what has to be done to prevent it, and you know what everybody's motivations are. It's it's it is compelling enough to want me to come back. Uh, but like you said, being used to the more current way availability of things, uh, I would probably have a tough time, you know, reading this over the course of a year with one, effectively one, you know, one full pay- book a month. Uh, this right. this is a book that I think I would be far more satisfied with reading it in trade and just kind of you know, bang banging out this whole story in you know in a, in a day or two. Barry Windsor Smith's um, possibly most beloved storyline before this one, very soon before this one, was the Weapon X series. Mm-hmm. I think it was before this. I'm pretty um, sure it was, was, and that was only a few pages in each issue of Marvel Presents. Right, so, so eight pages per chapter over the course of 14 issues of Marvel Comics Presents, and I'm just looking it up. This issue actually came out between chapters 10 and 11 of that. So, yeah, he was very much, you know, in vogue at the time. But, um, but but that's also... But to be fair, I have that book in the, in the graphic novel or the trade paperback, whatever you want to call it. I did not get it in Marvel Presents as it came out. (laughs) And that's weekly, whereas this is monthly. So, you know, digesting shorter chapters, because those chapters also, I mean, as an overall story, Weapon X is, you know, beloved and compelling and huge. But just read a single chapter of that, eh, not a lot happens. Most of it is just Cordelius and the professor and the uh, woman, I forget her name, arguing over what Logan is doing, you know, in the snow. Um, but, but yeah, so that's a similar story structure, at least. Yeah, and I guess I'm just selfish. <laughs> I want to be I want my satisfaction instantly. But I think that is more... <laughs> of the way of thinking of, of this day and age than that era as well. I think there is more of a, a, a desire for instant gratification just because we've become a little spoiled with the availability of things, you know, uh, you know, something comes out in, in theatrical release and within, you know, a couple, two months or so you have it available at home to watch or very often nowadays you even have it simultaneously at home. Uh, you know, things come out, much you know things are at our fingertips with all the streaming services and things uh including the uh streaming services for comic books so there's just so much more available to us that i think instant gratification has become more of a way of life than it was 30 years ago mm-hmm. well i like that you picked up kind of the uh the way the stories interconnect because i wasn't sure how much of that would be obvious on a one-time read-through, but yeah, the um, very much something bad happens with Dr. Seleski in that nuclear plant, and he comes back in time to prevent that from happening. Uh, that's the that's what the main story occupies itself with for the next ten issues, and if I recall correctly, the timing is such that the backup concludes at the same time that the main story resolves that question so that the series can then go on and move forward with whatever it's going to do. Um, but yeah, I, I realize that this story does not maybe have as many philosophical deep seated questions over the nature of humanity and life and everything that Magnus had, 
Um, which is kind of funny because Magnus is more of a 60s retro kitschy kind of story, at least on surface level. This feels deeper, but it maybe has less actually going on in it to sink our teeth into as far as conversation. Well, it, it, it's almost uh, <laughs> it's it's almost hidden uh, that Magnus appears to be more of a science fiction story, but it does seem to have more of a uh, philosophical bent to it, whereas this one definitely seems more science fiction-y uh, than, than Magnus, which I don't know that you would have thought that on its face. Mm-hmm. But they, these are both, you know, quite frankly, both very satisfying reads. Uh, and, and like I said with the last one, I would be interested in seeing more of this. Uh, I know one of my, my old friends who I used to collect comics with you know, back in the, in the 1970s when some people weren't even born. Uh, and, you know, we, we've stayed friends for, for the last 50 years. And uh, he was a, a fan of Valiant Comics, and he, he spoke very highly of it. And uh, I never never really followed up on that. And I think, uh, depending on how available they are, I may need to. There, there are some really interesting concepts. Um, one of the series they launch is XO Mana War, which is basically what if, um, what if somebody from Roman times, like uh, the the Visigoths, what if one of the Visigoths who conquered Rome were swept into the present day and given basically an Iron Man suit? So he's a warrior. And now he has his like ultimate weapon and has to live in a, you know, a present day world that he doesn't know. And that's, you know, interesting. Um, Harbinger is sort of a spin on the X-Men concept of somebody gathering superheroic people to train them and everything, except that the person in charge does not have the best interests of his people at heart and is kind of wanting to, Take over the world is too cliche or cliche a thing to say, but he, you know, he wants to use this organization that he has developed for his own betterment and um, empowerment, really. So the series eventually focuses on a group of those kids who run away. So you have a bunch of X Men ish youths on the run from Xavier's school for conquering youngsters huh. if you will um archer and armstrong is a buddy cop kind of not cops but um you have like a young very, very morally driven you know straight and narrow kind of youth character teamed up with an older raunchier morality is flexible but we're going to try to do the right thing kind of guy and so they're sort of mismatched pair out doing stuff. So lots and lots of fun, you know, very different kinds of stories. Yeah, you said they're, they're not really very interrelated. So for the time and, being, what I might do is uh, look to follow up on these two series and then maybe expand that later because I don't think I can have as a reading project quite as wide-ranging as what you do. <laughs> Maybe not, maybe not. But these are definitely two that are worth starting, and uh, they're they're popular concepts. Even after Valiant lost the license to do these Gold Key characters, um, 
Dynamite or someone picked them up and continues doing Dark Horse, uh, Solar and Magnus comics, I think, today. I know in the last 10 years. I don't know if the series are still going, but, um, but yeah. So I guess we should rate Solar before we call it a day. Oh, yeah. Uh, you go first, since you gave the synopsis on this one. Um. So the art in this, like I said, is very different to the art in Magnus. But even though I'm not like an art critic or something, I find myself really, really drawn into it. Um, I am going to respectfully disagree with your uh, what you said about the face work in this. I think the emotions on people's faces in this really help to sell the storytelling. Um, you know, even though we started this conversation by saying that this is a, the more writer-driven line versus images artist driven line the art in this just feels so compelling throughout and a lot of that has to do with the color work the coloring in this is gorgeous uh and it's really evident in scenes where the color fields are not separated by line work so like energy fields and stuff around solar um you know that those aren't drawn. It's just the colorist choosing to do things a certain way. And it's just so beautiful. So the, the line work I think is strong. The color elevates it. And I want to give the art an A. The Barry Windsor Smith backup is also amazing. Um, I don't know, Paul, I feel like I'm going to be a broken record. I'm just going to give this thing an A <laughs> all around. It's possible that the cover is the weakest part of the book for me. And that's an A minus or B plus. So yeah, I, I, I recommended these books because I like them. So here we are. That's fine. No, no problem there. What do you think? Um, I think I agree with you on the facial work for Dr. Solensky and Space Solensky. I think there's a lot of expression there that works. Uh, in particular, I didn't care for the facial work on the homeless people. Uh, the way they're drawn appears almost cartoonish. Uh you know, mad magazine-ish, uh, and I and I don't didn't care for that mostly. Uh, the rest of and and the actually the psychiatrist for some reason just didn't look quite right to me. Uh, but other than that, I I could understand your point, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. So for the art, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna combine it. I agree with you that the coloring is really really solid in this, and and really adds to the storytelling. So I'm going to I'm going to say subtracting a little for just certain little things that I don't like it's still a B plus. Uh story wise I'm totally intrigued by it. I really really like the breaking the story down into two different time frames and presenting it both to you. Uh it's just, you know, it's something you don't see much of. I mean, I know it's not absolutely unique in that respect that there I, I can't think of off the top of my head but i guarantee you there are other examples of it uh but it's not something you see in comics very often at all ever uh so i really like that and i think it's 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 a real tough balancing act and i'd be curious to see how it goes over the next nine issues to see how how well shooter paces it all and and has it going uh you know simultaneously but in this issue, certainly he hits the bullseye with it. So I'm going to give the writing an A on this. Uh, and I didn't say the cover. The cover is 
I, I, I really like the cover. I think it's an A. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give the book overall an A, even though I only gave a B plus to the art. Looking through the art, I do agree with you on the homeless characters. Um, they are, and maybe intentionally, drawn a lot less like, like most of the people's faces could be photo referenced, whereas the homeless people are definitely a bit more surreal and cartoony. So I, I agree with you on that. Okay. So uh, I got to tell you, thank you for, for bringing these two to my attention because I would have been blissfully ignorant of them forever. <laughs> these are two series I never would have, they never would have come under my radar. I could pretty much tell you. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you put them under my radar just gives me one more thing that I have to read. So I could say thank you to you seriously or very sarcastically. <laughs> well, it is my pleasure. Um, when I, like I said, when I discovered Valiant through the 2012 relaunch, um, one of my, biggest dismays is that I didn't really know anybody else who was reading them. It's like of all the different people I had gotten to know in comic circles and podcasting circles online, there just weren't any Valiant fans out there, you know, um, with the Baileys and the Gardeners and, you know, all the different people that we're friends with. So being able to share and spread a little bit of the appreciation love was a joy. And I, I appreciate that you, uh, Agreed to them, have them on, and I, I, I am happy that you enjoyed the book so much. Yeah, as am I. I'm, I'm glad you brought them to me, and I try to keep an open mind. I don't always do so, uh, but in this instance, I did, and I'm glad that I did. Uh, sometimes I just fall back into the trend of reading the traditional superhero books that I've loved so much for so many years, uh, which is very satisfying for me, but... I have to admit, every once in a while, just spreading that out a little bit further and, and looking to see what else is out there is also very satisfying. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for coming on. I'm hoping the listeners found this to be interesting. I would imagine they did, but they could let us know if they want. In the meanwhile, uh, like I said, thank you again. Before we uh, shut it out, do you want to just uh, give everybody a quick breakdown of where they can find you nowadays? Yeah, uh, so I do podcasts about various things. Um, I'm currently working on a Superman podcast talking about the Superman stories that came out during Crisis on Infinite Earths and then continuing on to the end of the pre-Crisis Superman. That is called Superman in Crisis. It is uh, at my website, johnreadscomics.com. It's also on your your favorite podcatchers. Um, If I do go forward with a Valiant podcast, that will also be hosted at johnreadscomics.com. So if that sounds like something you might want to do, I have no idea what it might be called or if it will happen, but just go to the website and just give a look, see at the list of shows at the top of the page and see if it's there. Um, And all of my, virtually all of my previous podcasting efforts are all hosted there. So kind of like two true freaks. I have the mega feed of all the stuff. And each show has its own individual feed as well. And if you uh, if you want to interact with me, I am on the Twitters, also at John Reads Comics. And uh, none of those anywhere. There are no H's in any of those names. <laughs> Just unlike. You want to find me? Break the H key off your keyboard. Unlike Scott H. Gardner. Right. He probably has my H. Probably he took, probably he took your H from you. 
God dang it, Scott. All right. Thanks again, John. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. And again, I hope everybody enjoyed listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.